let's ask for God's help and then we'll, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to think and to study and to learn. And we thank you for what you've been doing in your church over the past 2,000 years and, and what you've been doing in your people, your, the assembly of your people for, for much longer than that. But we think of, of your people on this side of the cross and resurrection and the part that we have in that. And I'm praying that today would be used by you to help us consider how we might stir one another up for faithfulness in our generation. And I ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, so today um, we are, we're getting into the, the last uh, kind of section of our class here. Um, and, and I basically have this week and next week all planned out. And then whatever we don't get to today, we'll finish up next week. But we're, we're basically picking up from the 16, 1700s and going right up to our church, our church's history, some of the values and things that matter to us as a church and the part that, that, uh, that you can play in it. Um, what we're going to do here is, is take a, just a, a broad uh, tour of history from the 1600s forward in terms of what God was doing in his church and, and in the broader culture. And uh, this is a really important things happen. Lots of important things happen. And this is going to be a pretty quick tour. So feel free to take some notes. Feel free to ask some questions if you want to uh, clarify any of these things. Um, while the Baptist movement was, was born and was being nurtured in the early 1600s, throughout the 1700s, um, things weren't going so well in the broader world. Uh, the Reformation um, coincided with another movement in history that also starts with an R right around that same time period. Anyone know what the name of that is? In the church, you had the Reformation. In the broader world, you had the... The Renaissance, right? So the Renaissance, uh, well, revolution came, right? So you, you, the, you could use the R word for a bunch of things here. Revolution came as a result of all this. Um, the Renaissance was a worldwide recovery of knowledge in which people were breaking out of the, the Middle Ages and were going back and recovering the knowledge of the ancients, the Greeks and the Romans, and, and, uh, and understanding, um, uh, re rediscovering some things. And um, the Renaissance produced or at least led into the scientific revolution. And so you think of guys like Galileo, guys like Copernicus, who, what, what was Copernicus's big, big insight? Anyone, uh, anyone remember what, what we remember him for? The earth is not at the center of the, of the solar system, right? The sun's at the center. That was, that was Copernicus's big, big insight. And so you had Copernicus, Galileo, Newton, Kepler, all these guys. And, and at, at, at that point, these were all Bible-believing Christians uh, who were from their Christian worldview uh, with this whole recovery of knowledge known as the Renaissance, studying the world and, and, and uncovering the mysteries of the universe. But as so often happens, success got to people's heads. And the successes of the scientific revolution paved the way for a, a big movement that started in Europe and, and touched the whole Western world known as the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is a period that began in the 1600s, ran throughout the 1700s. So really that same time period uh, that, that overlaps with, with the whole time that the, the Baptist movement was being born and nurtured. And, and the, the, the Enlightenment... 
basically a way to describe it is that this, the successes of the scientific revolution, we're discovering all these things, we're discovering gravity and how the plants work, whatever. We got drunk on, hu- on human knowledge. We got drunk and heady on our ability to discover things. And the Enlightenment was this whole philosophical uh, collection of ideas that we can figure everything out ourselves. Um, we don't need God's wisdom or revelation in scripture. And uh, in fact, we have to reject the Bible as unscientific, um, as unreasonable. Uh, we can't trust it because we know from science that miracles don't work and, and that miracles are impossible. We know from science that a baby can't be born of a virgin and a man can't rise from the dead. So the Bible's a, Bible's a bunch of myths. We can't trust it. Human reason, scientific knowledge, this is going to give us all that we need. And, and so this, this idea, the, the Enlightenment really, uh, uh, really took off as people, like I said, were drunk on, on human capability. Unfortunately, uh, the, 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 the church in Europe was in a pretty vulnerable spot, and we could say the church in Europe, and to, to a lesser extent, the New World. Um, but uh, one of the big problems that we looked at last week, or in the last couple of weeks, is you had state churches where everybody got baptized as a baby, and that led to, what, what's the name for, for this idea where everybody's a Christian? Anyone remember the, the word we use for that? I mean, you don't have to remember the words, but what's the, the idea there is, is, is nominalism, which nominalism comes from just the word for name, is that everyone's a Christian in name, and, and you had this widespread nominalism. Um, and in fact, um, uh, by, within a century of the Reformation, within, within a you know, hundred years or so, you had church, state churches, Protestant Reformed churches, full of people who had been baptized as babies, were Christian in name, but that was basically it. And so they were ripe for, um, for, for, the, for the Enlightenment to come and, and, and do a lot of damage. Um, by about halfway through the 1700s, church leaders were becoming really worried about the state of Christianity. And um, because among the educated people, the Enlightenment was doing its work. And they're starting to think, well, we don't have to believe this. We can figure out everything. We, don't need, we can't believe in miracles. We don't need God's word. And, and they were getting too cool for school. And, and further on down, among the working class, particularly this was true in the New World, is you had people who had come to the New World, largely for religious freedom at, at the beginning, but were very focused on, on all the opportunities there and, and financial growth and building up wealth and, and had really, their hearts had started to cool off to, to, to the Lord and, and the, the, the truths that, that had sent them there in the first place. And the religious fervor of the Puritans really died off. And so in this, in this situation, and there's a lot more that went on there, but God began a work. And this work uh, is known by a few different names. We call it the First Great Awakening or, or the Evangelical Revivals. And um, some of the key individuals connected with this uh, would include people like George Whitfield, uh, the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley, um, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, and, and people that were, were more associated with it a, a, a step or two further out might include guys like John Newton, uh, William Wilberforce, and, um, and, and God used some of those, those, those key evangelists like John, uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield on both sides of the Atlantic to stir people up to the gospel. And, and so one of the great hallmarks of, of, this, of these revivals 
was was that they did not assume that just because you went to church and were baptized as a baby that you knew the Lord. And we might think, well, of course you shouldn't assume that. But that was very much a part of, like, you just, of course you're a Christian, you go to the parish church and whatever. But no, like, and, and, and for John Wesley, that key moment happened when he met a pietist from Germany. Now, pietism, we've talked about it a couple of weeks ago, was this movement uh, within the, started within the Lutheran church, but of just saying like, no, we need to have our own vibrant relationship with God. And this pietist met John Wesley and they were talking and, and he said, like, he, uh, the whole conversation is recorded, but basically, do you know that Jesus died for you? Do you have the witness of the Spirit in you that you are a child of God? And no one had ever asked him those questions before. And, and he said yes, but he came to realize, no, I, I didn't. He actually didn't. And then it was a short time later, while reading, uh, it was Luther's preface to the book of Romans. You see, there's that Reformation connection. John Wesley was converted and came to believe the gospel for himself and, and actually um, actually was saved. And, um, and, and so it was just, uh, uh, that, and that, that whole spirit of, of not assuming you're a Christian, but preaching the gospel to churchgoers was one of the big hallmarks of that first great awakening. Um, and so that's why we call them the evangelical revivals or evangelical revivals. Um, I, 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 evangelical is a little bit more, more accurate to, in pronunciation. The, the word evangelical comes from the word evangel, which means gospel. It, it comes from euangelion, which is in, in, in Greek is the word for gospel. So these were gospel people preaching the gospel and calling people, even if they had grown up in the church, to believe the gospel. And, and um, now it's very, very interesting as you look at the, this big evangelical awakening uh, on, on both sides of the Atlantic. Not many, in fact, if any, of the significant leaders of this revival and these awakenings, not many of them were Baptists. Um, Baptists benefited from the revivals. Um, Baptist churches grew significantly in, in the wake of these revivals, but Baptists weren't among the leaders. Now, I have a theory on why that's the case. Um, it's because um, back in the 1600s, 150 or so years before, or 100 years before, the Baptists had already started to figure out that just because you go to church and were baptized as a baby doesn't mean you're a Christian. So Baptists were ahead of the curve, and they were all—they had already developed churches of. They believed that a church was was an assembly of believing people who actually had personal faith in Jesus, and so Baptists by and large, in, in the 1700s, didn't have the big problem of nominalism, of pews filled with people who said they were Christians but didn't actually believe the gospel. Now, as time went on, believe me, there's tons of Baptist churches today that do have that problem uh, and, 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 and have been in the past as well. But at this point, my theory that I'd like to test with some more research is that, um, is that Baptist churches just, uh, the, the problem of of people who were just Christians in name wasn't as widespread. Um, now, way more could be said here. God did a great work in those revivals. Um, now, at the same time, uh, Satan was also up to some things as well. And so uh, one of the ways that we we can see how the evangelical revivals, the great, first great awakening, was in some ways an early response to the challenge of the Enlightenment. Right of everyone like before the Enlightenment, everyone believed God made the world. Everyone believed the Bible was true. Theology was the queen of the sciences. Like you'd go to you'd go, 
you go to a university and you could study science, politics, art, or at the very top, theology. Like It was a Christian world here in the West. After the Enlightenment, that wasn't the case at all. And so the, the evangelical awakenings were... In, from one perspective, an early response to the, great, to, the, to the challenge of the Enlightenment. There was another response to the challenge of the Enlightenment, very different later on in the 1700s. And this movement was, uh, is known today as theological liberalism. Now, we got to care when we use the word liberal, it can mean all kinds of different things. Some good, some bad. Uh, this is one of the bad ones. Um, and it came, uh, it was really developed, and we can trace it down to one key guy named Friedrich Schleiermacher, who was obviously German, and, and he had been, uh, <clears throat> he was deeply influenced by the Enlightenment. And so it was interesting, his parents sent him off to pastoral ministry training at a, at a, at a college or a university. And, and he, he sent him off to be trained for the Christian ministry because, you know, think back then, you know, every good family at least wanted one of their sons to be a pastor. And he couldn't bear to tell his parents that he didn't believe any of this anymore because the enlightenment had infected him. And he couldn't believe. He couldn't believe in an inspired Bible and a resurrected Jesus. Cause, and so he, he went off to and, and, and was going through this, this uh, his, his education Meanwhile, knowing that he, he didn't believe the, the, the faith of, of, of his, of his uh, parents. But there, at, at that college, he encountered a religious movement, pietism. So the pietists come up, come up again here. And what he found about these pietists was what he was profoundly moved by the personal experience that these pietists had with Christianity. The warmth of their faith, it was real to them. They, 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 they felt this. They, they experienced this. It wasn't just this cold doctrinal system. It, it had life. And, and that drew him in, and he loved it. And so over time, Schleiermacher developed a system that came, like we said, to be known as theological liberalism. So here's what he did. He argued that the essence of Christianity is a feeling, and this is almost his words exactly, a feeling of utter dependence on Christ. So if you feel like you're totally dependent on Jesus, that's the essence of Christianity. And that feeling does not connect in any way with historical realities. So, you don't have to believe the Bible's God's word. You don't have to believe Jesus was born of a virgin and actually did miracles and actually died on a cross for our sins and actually rose from the dead. No, no, that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about the real historical uh, realities of, 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 of Jesus who died and rose again. No, Christianity is about you with the feeling of dependence upon Jesus, however you def <clears throat> define him. That's what Schleiermacher said. Um, and so uh, here's, here's what, what was so popular about this, is that you could buy into all the enlightenment garbage. You could be like, you could reject the Bible, you could you know, be too cool for school. No, of course, of course those miracles didn't happen. Of course he wasn't born of a virgin. And you could also still call yourself a Christian and enjoy some form of the benefits of, of, of religion. So, you know, you could have your cake and eat it too. And, and it was so popular and it caught on like wildfire. And it well into the 1800s, uh, it, it, just, it just steamed ahead. And, and, 
and it was, uh, it was incredibly successful. One of the things we need to realize is that uh, Schleiermacher did not develop the system because he was trying to hurt the church. It's a huge lesson here. Schleiermacher developed the system because he was trying to save the church. He had a heart, he, he saw the church being devastated by the Enlightenment as people were rejecting Christianity. And so it, liberalism was a rescue operation, an attempted rescue operation, where he said, no, 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 no. You don't have to leave the church. You don't have to reject Jesus. He just redefined Christianity, making it all about feelings and experience. And, and so if you've ever wondered to this day why churches like the United Church exist and how someone can go to the United Church and, or even be a, be a minister in the United Church and reject the Bible as the inspired word of God and yet still think of themselves as a Christian, that's, that's liberalism. That's because it, it's a very self-conscious thing for them. They're, they're not embarrassed that they reject scripture. They, they think they, they're embarrassed for us that we actually still believe it's God's word. They think we're... Well, I, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but, but you know, zoom out. They, they, they think we're a bunch of backwards hicks, fundamentalists who can't think properly. Because, of course, the Bible's not true. And, of course, you don't have to believe the Bible to actually believe in Jesus because it's, it's all about that feeling. Okay? So, so theological liberalism um, really, really took off. And, and throughout the 1800s, on both sides of the Atlantic, um, it, was, it was growing. Now, there's another movement in this time throughout the 1800s. Okay, so we've, we've talked about the 1600s and the growth of the Enlightenment, the, the evangelical awakenings in the 1700s, the birth of liberalism in the 1700s. As we get into the 1800s, there's another movement called the Second Great Awakening. And, uh, and the Second Great Awakening happened about 100 years or, or so. I mean, there's different ways of marking the time spans here. Like the First Great Awakening, it was marked by, um, by a lot of renewed passion and interest in Christianity. One of the difference, though, is, differences, though, is that the First Great Awakening, think, so think Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, uh, John Wesley, the First Great Awakening was marked by revivals. The Second Great Awakening in the next century was largely marked by revivalism. Okay, so there's a, we ha, you have to understand the difference between revivals and revivalism. Um, Ian Murray wrote a book called Revival and Revivalism, The Making and the Marring of, of American Evangelicalism. And the title just says, says so much there. Revivalism is this idea that we um, must have revivals at any cost that the, and that we can make them happen. That's a short, a short way of describing it. That we can work up a revival. Um, now, there's other forms of revivalism that wouldn't say that and, and that I still don't think are, 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 are biblical. Uh, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit here. But um, Charles Finney was one of the key leaders in this second, quote-unquote, Great Awakening. He believed that revivals can be manufactured and worked up. He rejected the Reformation doctrine that people are totally depraved. He said, no, 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 people, are, people can choose God if they, if they want to, and we just have to apply the right amount of pressure and manipulation. He had this phrase of priming the pump, and, and he believed that revivals could be worked up and that we could, you know, sure, call in the revival guy, he'll do it, give some emotional messages, you create the right environment, and boom, we can make this happen. And, uh, and, and so the Second Great Awakening was, was really marked by this. 
um, a lot of a lot of emotionalism, a lot of manipulation. Uh, Second Great Awakening was 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 basically an American movement. Um, now there were good things that happened during this time. Um, D.L. Moody, for example, uh, and, and a lot of the work that God did through him happened during this time. Around the world, in, this, in the 1800s, there was good good work happening. While the work of the while the Second Great Awakening was going on, or, or even as it was maybe petering out, uh, you had Charles Spurgeon ministering in London. You had the Swedish Baptist movement arising in Sweden, a movement that I have affinity for, even though I have no no Swedish in me. Um, the modern missionary movement was birthed in, uh, starting in England during this time. William Carey picked up the Great Commission that had been so long forgotten. And you had guys like William Carey and Andrew Fuller sailing off and bringing the gospel or, and supporting him and bringing the gospel to India. And then you had Hudson Taylor and, and, and guys going to China. And, and, and the modern missionary movement was born in the 1800s. Um, and so some really amazing works of God. Uh, by the way, almost all the founders of the modern missionary movement were Calvinists. And, and by that, I just mean they believe God's sovereign over salvation. That means God's chosen people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Jesus has died for people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Let's go get them. And so um, that's just something that doesn't often get uh, attention, doesn't get drawn to it. But in America, revivalism left its mark. And sadly, many Baptist churches experienced a real downgrade during this time period. Um, revivalism was very much married to another idea, and I'm going to use another word here, but I'll define it, and that, that other word is pragmatism. Pragmatism means do whatever works. If it works, do it. Whatever gets results. So we got to have a revival, because that's what we got to do. Forget that the fact that, you know, uh, Paul never told Timothy to stir up a revival. He told him to be faithful and to preach the word. But uh, no, we've got to have a revival, and we're going to do whatever it takes to get a revival going. So that's, that's revivalism and pragmatism going together. Um, during this period, you had, among many Baptist churches, you had elders disappear. It was during this period that you had elders disappear, and instead, one pastor with a board of deacons. And that, 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 that model came to be... Uh, more applied there as, as Baptist churches, by and large, got more interested in what works instead of what does the Bible actually say. Uh, he, here's a way of, of summing some of this up. The first great awakening in the 1700s, it stressed personal experience of the gospel. And it, it said that you needed to, to not just believe the doctrine of the Reformation, you had to experience it. So it stressed personal experience in addition to the doctrines of the Reformation. We could even say it, they stressed the personal experience of the doctrines of the Reformation. In the 1800s, that Second Great Awakening, those quote-unquote revivals, tended to stress personal experience at the expense of the doctrines of the Reformation. They kind of tossed doctrine overboard because it didn't accomplish results and it was all about results. The very, okay, so we can be kind of Canadian here and say the Second Great Awakening was very American. You know, made in America, let's do this. You know, we can do it kind of thing. Um, revivalism still uh, manifests itself today in lots of churches. Um, and it's, it, it manifests itself in this idea that ordinary church ministry is a ho-hum affair of potlucks and boring preaching 
And that if you want God to do something, then two or three times a year, you call in a special speaker who will come for a string of nights and have some quote-unquote deeper life meetings or, or that kind of thing. And that's when you expect God to show up and get to work. And that's when you repent of your sin and do all this kind of stuff. And then when he leaves, you just go back to normal and, and you repeat, rinse and repeat as, as necessary. Um, as opposed to the New Testament understanding that we should expect God to show up every Sunday as his word is opened and the spirit opens our eyes and that everyday normal church ministry is gloriously supernatural. Um, now, again, it's not by saying this, I'm not saying God doesn't send revivals. I'm not saying that. Uh, the first great awakening is a great example of God sending revivals and God has sent many revivals since then. Um, but... Our ministry priority in the New Testament is not to stir up revival. It's to be faithful. And if God chooses to send a revival, praise God. We'll enjoy it. Um, But it's not to just assume that we're going to have boring, bland, lifeless ministry and then call on a revivalist once a year to to actually uh, let God do some stuff. So that gives a bit of a picture. So if you say, like, this kind of seems a little bit confusing and messy, that you're getting it. Okay, you're, you're, you're getting it. His, history is a little bit confusing and messy. As the 1900s dawned, so if you think we're moving through the centuries here, now we're getting to the 1900s, um, the Enlightenment continued to rage on. Okay, as all these things were happening, you had the revivals and awakenings, the Enlightenment continued to rage on. Uh, Darwin's theory of evolution poured gas on the fire of the Enlightenment. Okay. So there are some creationists who have, seem to have the idea that the culture and church were fine and dandy until Darwin came along. That's completely naive, and, and it's just not true. Darwin uh, was accepted because the Enlightenment had already been doing its thing for, for such a long time. Darwin's theory of evolution was just gas on the fire. The fire was already there, but it, but it was gas on the fire. And one of the things that, that Darwin's theory of evolution did was it made it fashionable to be an atheist. Before, before that time period, um, most of the Enlightenment guys were what we would call deists, which means they believe there's a God, but he's not very involved, and he certainly doesn't do miracles. Because, of course, there had to be a God, because where else did this world come from? Well, then Darwin's theory of evolution comes along and gives a plausible theory, as they saw it, for, where, for the origin of life. And, and by the way, I don't want to go on a rabbit trail here, Darwin's theory of evolution is actually a pretty good theory. As a theory, it makes sense. It just doesn't, it doesn't work at the level of actual science. And Darwin had no idea how complicated a human cell was. Darwin had no idea of DNA. So when you look at the theory of evolution, you see how it works. It's like, yeah, good job, buddy, like trying to invent a theory that does away with God. You did a pretty good job, except you had no clue what you were talking about. And, and you had no clue how complicated life was. And that's why in the last few decades, even among non-Christians, intelligent design has, has, the intelligent design movement has ramped up. Because as we look at the level of information in the cell, you just can't come to the conclusion that this all happened by accident. Anyways, Darwin, gas on the fire, all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but, you know, it was a part of the process where now it's cool to be an atheist. And, um, and, and so as that's going on, the attraction of liberalism gets stronger and stronger and stronger because everyone now believes in evolution. And guess what? If you're a liberal, 
you can believe in evolution too. You don't have to believe God created things because you don't have to believe anything. You just have to have a good feeling for Jesus in your heart. And um, also, we didn't talk about this too much. One of the big focuses of the second great awakening had been social action, which was good. But an overemphasis on social action also made people ripe for liberalism. Because if the main thing in Christianity is helping the poor, then does it matter whether you believe in creation or evolution? Does it matter if you believe in Jesus' resurrection or not? Doctrine doesn't really matter if the main thing is just helping the poor. And, and so uh, I think an overemphasis on social action... Now again, I'm not saying helping the poor isn't important. Like, the first Great Awakening had lots of social action too. I mean, think of William Wilberforce abol- abolishing slavery. That was first Great Awakening. Gospel applied in beautiful ways. But an overemphasis and, and a replacing of... Throughout the second Great Awakening, you had this replacing of, uh, of, of gospel mission with social mission, and it made people even more right for liberalism. By the early 1900s, it looked like liberalism was going to win and take... Like, denominations were falling like flies. Church, uh, church institutions were falling like flies. Uh, like, Bible colleges, seminaries... Um, uh, churches were falling like flies. Pastors, because by this point, most of the schools that trained pastors were liberal. Most of them were. So you've got pa- liberal pastors getting pumped out, coming and preaching liberal gospel from the pulpit, and it's not a surprise that soon enough a lot of those people were liberal. So by the 1900s, it looks like liberalism is going to take over the church entirely. And so a, res- a response movement that was born in the early 1900s was called the fundamentalist movement. Uh, now most of us here, when you th- so let's just do a quick game of word association. You hear the word fundamentalist, word asso- free word association. What are some words that come to mind? Just shout them out. Independent Baptist. Independent any others? Just shout them out. King James only. Conservative? Very conservative. Way more conservative than you. Uh, and I don't mean you, Tyson. I mean, like, it's the I'm more conservative than you game. That, that's, that's what I mean. Um, and, and one or two others. Fun, fundy, okay. Yeah. Uh, separatistic. Right? We're going to separate from everybody and everything for every reason possible. Okay? I mean, here's the thing. When the fundamentalist movement was first born, it wasn't that case. It was actually quite a bit more open than that. And why they were called fundamentals is that they stressed, no, there are some fundamental truths that you have to believe to be a Christian. If you reject them, you're not a Christian. So they stress that, no, in response to liberalism, there are doctrines that you have to believe, like an inspired Bible, a virgin-born Jesus. A Jesus who actually did historical miracles, who actually died on the cross, who actually rose from the dead. These things happen in time and space. And, um, and they said, you cannot have Christianity without these things. Uh, now, there were different flavors of, 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 of fundamentals, fundamentalists. I'd love to talk about the history of, of it and the... the, the, the the, it, was, it was oil money that paid for these newspapers to, or, or newsletters to be sent out to pastors, the fundamentalists, uh, called the Fundamentals and uh, published in a book. And, and it, was, it was very, very interesting. Um, now, some of the guys, 
that were part of this movement actually didn't like being called fundamentalists. And they were, they were the guys who would be the, more the heirs of the Reformation. Uh, Gresham Machen, J. Gresham Machen is one of the key names there. He wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. Uh, now, if he says Christianity and liberalism, his point is that they're two different things. It's, it's a really good book. It's very relevant. Gresham Machen's point is that liberalism is not the same as Christianity. It's a completely different religion. You get rid of these truths, you get rid of these, these, this doctrinal foundation, you don't have Christianity anymore. And um, these, these guys were heirs of the Reformation, largely Presbyterians, but the, what we would say today is the good kind of Presbyterians. And they, uh, they fought the battle in the Presbyterian church. Um, and they're the guys that, that had to leave Princeton Seminary when it went liberal and were behind the founding of Westminster, Westminster Seminary. Uh, and the, the Presbyterian Church in America, in America, the PCA, they're the um, still largely conservative Presbyterian Church. It's confusing because in, in, in Canada, we don't have a conservative Presbyterian Church. Presbyterian Church in Canada is liberal. In the States, you've got liberal and conservative Presbyterian churches. So the Presbyterian Church USA, the PCUSA, is liberal. And the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA, is conservative. So stay in Canada and you won't have to worry about that, um, about sorting that out. But uh, So you had some of those guys who were fighting the liberals, but they were working from robust reform theology. These are Westminster Confession guys, really strong. You also had fundamentalists who were very much the heirs of the Second Great Awakening. They were very Arminian. They had no connection to the Reformation. They were very shallow theologically. And they identified those like seven fundamentals that you had to believe in, and that was it. That was that that that, that was it. That was all they focused on. And um, and sadly, many Baptist churches became a part of this. Um, so that today, when we think fundamentalist church, we think independent fundamentalist Baptist churches. Today, are there any independent fundamentalist churches that aren't Baptists? Uh, I'm not sure. Now, here's the thing, guys. Because independent fundamentalist Baptist churches are independent, you can't paint them all with a broad brush. They're not all angry and separatistic. There's some that are wonderful gospel-preaching, Bible-preaching places. Th th that's true. Okay, So I know some of us here have had bad experiences with some independent fundamentalist churches. Uh, we, we have to be careful how broad of a brush we paint them with. But by and large, that movement got... So if I, if I break my rule here and paint with a broad brush, by and large, that movement got a little more and more separated from history, more and more separated from everything, and became very focused on, on separation. They became very, you could say, reclusive. Culture's bad. Uh, don't go to the movies. Don't go to the theater. And actually, maybe that's still good advice. But um, very separatistic and and very building as a little culture. Okay, my, my mom grew up in this environment. Uh, she there was a rule that you had to take your Bible to school and you had to stack your Bible on top of your other school books. You couldn't put another book on top of the Bible. So think of how embarrassed she was by that. She had to pass out pamphlets at school about why we don't smoke and dance and drink and. Once a year, they'd have the special speaker come in who would talk for a week about why you don't smoke and dance and drink. Okay. Now, not all fundamentalist Baptist churches are like that, but unfortunately, some of them are, and that, that, was, that was her experience. Um, 
Fundamentalist is often, not always, but often associated with just the word fighting, fighting fundamentalists, because they, they kind of, as they lost a lot of the battles, as seminaries and denominations fell, they, they became very, uh, very militant. Um, now, uh, the fundamentalists got, got a lot of the press. You had the Westminster Seminary guys, robust reform guys fighting the liberals. They didn't get a lot of press. The fundamentalists got a lot of the press. Uh, there was the Scopes trial in the 1920s where, where there was this, this legal trial over evolution, and it just made fundamentalist Christians look really, really dumb. So um, as, this, as these battles waged and, and became really fierce, um, and as, as, uh, throughout, the, throughout the 40s, it seemed like you kind of had this separation into two camps. The fundamentalists largely withdrew, they realized they had lost, lost a lot of the seminaries, they lost a lot of the denominations, so they started their own and became very focused on sort of circling up the wagons. The liberals largely controlled the big institutions. You had a group of people in the 1950s that, that were really concerned about this. And th- these people in the 1950s, um, they, they thought that the fundamentalists were right about their doctrine, but were wrong about the way that they had carried out the, the fight. They were wrong to become anti-culture, uh, anti-everybody, uh, we're going to separate and be our own little huddle. And so you had a group of people in the 1950s that said, we want to start a fresh movement that holds to the doctrine of the Reformation and the doctrine even of perhaps the fundamentalists, we could say, at least the, the right things that were good there, we're going to be doctrinally conservative, but we don't want the posture of the fundamentalists, which was, leave us, go away, you evil world. Rather, we want to have an open-armed engagement with the world. And this group needed to choose a name for themselves as they figured out who are we and what do we want to be about. And the name they chose was Evangelical. Now, where have we heard the word evangelical before? Where's the last time it showed up? It was this morning. I know we've talked about it a lot. There's a lot of content this morning, I know. First Great Awakening, right? Evangelical comes from the word for... Well, evangel, which is the word for gospel. Gospel people. And these people in the 1950s said, we want to stand in... We want to stand downstream from those gospel people in the 1700s. We're we're connected to them. And what we're doing in our age is we're saying we want to embrace the doctrine of the Reformation, even if a lot of them weren't totally what we would say reformed. We want to believe the the gospel. We want to hold fast. But we want to engage our world. We want to go get educated at the best universities. We want to seat at the table. We want to engage with our culture. We want to care about social action, right? The fundamentalists had really overreacted and said, no, we're not going to take care of the poor. We're just going to win souls. And, uh, and, and this, this group um, of evangelicals, or sometimes called neo-evangelicals in the 1950s, really wanted to, to, to do two important things. Um, the public face, the public figure of this movement was Billy Graham. And, and this was a very conscious movement. Um, Fuller Seminary was their school. It was the first kind of school that, that had this deliberate, um, deliberate program. Uh, Christianity Today was their 
their um, platform, uh, their their magazine, and and they there was a, and then they started an organization in I think fifty or fifty one called the National Association of Evangelicals, and there's a lot of hype and a lot of optimism. Now, part of that just went along with the fifties. The fifties were a decade of incredible optimism. I love looking, I grew up on Richard Scarry books and I love those, the Richard Scarry books that were illustrated kind of from that 50s period. It was post-war and time of incredible uh, wealth and optimism and interstates were being built and people could hop in the car and visit any part of the US they wanted to and go buy a toaster and a fridge and it was just, so there's is this period of incredible optimism and the evangelicals sort of were, were a part of that time. Um, now, a lot of what happened with, with the evangelical movement, by the way, of which we are a part, okay, a lot of it was, was good. We would say a lot of it was good. Unfortunately, it's clear from our perspective now that some of the seeds of its undoing were planted already from the very beginning. Because... And we're going to sew this up pretty quick here, guys. And we're going to pick this up, pick this up next week, because evangelical, the new, these new evangelicals had a deliberate program that they wanted to engage with the world. Okay, now think carefully here. If you want to engage with the world and you want a seat at the world's table, who gets to decide whether or not you get that seat? Is it you, or is it the world? See what I'm saying? You don't get to say like, hey world, uh, we're, you should listen to us. Invite us into your meetings and let us work at your universities and give us a position of influence. And they go, oh, okay. No, it doesn't work that way. If you want the world to accept you, you have to be acceptable to the world. You see? And so at the very beginning of this new evangelical movement, there was a posture that was, now they wouldn't have said this, but there was a posture of, of being willing to compromise in order to earn that seat at the table. There's a joke. Um, an evangelical is someone who says to a liberal, I'll call you a Christian if you call me a scholar. And not all of you will get the joke, but, but that was part of what the evangelicals were wanting to do. They wanted to go get jobs at the best secular universities to show that dark Christian orthodoxy can be respectable. But to do that, they had to compromise. They had to compromise a lot. And they had to, they had to agree to play by the rules of the world. They had to play by the world's rules in order to play the world's game, which is what they wanted to do. And so it's not surprising that within just a few years, within 10 years or so, Fuller Seminary, Fuller Theological Seminary, had abandoned their belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, and, and, it, and it spread from there um, that, that these doctrinal things that they believed in started to, to get eroded and chipped away. And when we think of the evangelical movement over the last 50 years, or 60 or 70 years from there, we can see time and time again where evangelicals have been willing to compromise for the sake of, of gaining that seat at, at, the, at the world's table. This applies to politics, where, where evangelicals have been willing to turn a blind eye to the sins of politicians 
as long as if that politician is going to allow Christians to have a little bit more cultural power. Uh, it applies to all kinds of different areas. And, and um, one of the things that evangelicalism has produced is a whole lot of, of more um, pragmatism, right? Pragmatism means whatever works, do it. And, and that's where, you know, every, every time you walk into a Christian bookstore, you've got some new big fad, some new program that's the latest, greatest way to do church. And you just read this book and apply these steps. Your church is going to grow and everything's going to work out great. And, oh, well, let's try this or let's try that. Or um, evangelicalism has produced pulpits that are full of stories and self-help talks and not a lot of solid preaching of the word. Because if your whole mission is to be acceptable to the world, is to be accepted by the world, then, then it's going to be very easy for you to do whatever it takes to be accepted by the world. And, um, and so evangelicalism uh, we, has a lot, had a lot of positive contributions, and we're going to talk about some of those next week. We're gonna, we're gonna, next week we're going to talk about a few things. But practically, as I end here, as, as this new evangelical movement developed over 50 years, what, where, the spot that it often came to was a case where, on paper, these evangelical churches believe the truth of the Bible. If you look at their statement of faith, it's all good. We believe God the Father, Jesus, the whole inspiration of Scripture, it all looks good. But practically, if you were to just walk into their church and experience their ministry, you wouldn't be able to tell. Because practically what drives their ministry is appealing to people's felt needs, doing whatever people want, being cool, being accommodating. So formally they, or, they, they believe in the truth of Scripture. But practically that truth of Scripture does not show up and does not have much of an impact on how they do ministry. And that's, I think, something we'd all recognize as extremely common and is one of the results of this movement. And so what does that have to do with the Baptist movement? What does it have to do with us at EBC? Uh, what about EBC's specific history that started in the 60s? And where do we find ourselves today? And what part do you get to play in it? That's all. We're going to try and do that all next week. And we have to because it's our last week in this, in this series next week. So uh, join me, if you will, this time uh, at, at, at 9.30 next Sunday. And uh, looking forward to... Uh, to, to, to where we go from here. But you can see this is all getting really real as we get up to the present day. And, um, and, and again, our prayer in all of this learning about history is that God helps us to take our place to help ensure that this church stays faithful and, and remains faithful. And so let's ask for his help to do that right now as we, as we end here. Father in heaven, um, our minds have just taken in a lot of information. And I pray you'd help our hearts to process the things that you want us to. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves as evangelicals in the best sense of the word, as gospel people who love your gospel and want to share it with the world that needs it so desperately. And I pray that you would help us to not just want that, but to actually do that. And that once again, this exposure to history, to learning, would would stir us up to take our place in church history today. Church history is happening right now, Lord, as we, as we sit here. This is church history right now. This is our moment. And would you help us to be faithful in it? And I ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, thanks everyone. Again, email me your questions. I'd love to hear them.